Let's pray. Jesus, we want to know you more. We want to know you in the right way. We don't want to make up a Jesus to believe in. We want to see you as you are. So would you help us? I pray that as we look at this chapter, that your glory would be seen to us. Your disciples saw it, and we want to see it. And we want to be changed. That's what we need more than anything. More than needing application steps to walk away with, what we need is to see glory, your glory. So please, would you make it happen? Would you be glorified? Thank you that you have purchased for us the Holy Spirit, Jesus, to help us so that we can see. We cannot do it in our own strength. We can't approach you on our own, but you have purchased a way for us. And so we come through you, Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. If there's a king in his castle, so upstairs there's a big feast going on in his castle. Downstairs is the dungeon. That's where he's got the bad guys, murderers, rapists, swindlers, nasty guys downstairs. You're upstairs enjoying the feast. Midway through, the king tells his servants, hey, why don't you go open up the dungeon, tell those guys I want them to feast with me. How would you feel? Probably unsafe. You know who's down there. How would you feel if one of those men had killed your parents or a friend? At that point, you're not just feeling unsafe. You're feeling a deep sense of injustice. That's what you're feeling. Because the king's job is to keep people safe and to do justice. That's his job, and he's not doing it. Freeing criminals and inviting them to a feast is unjust. Can we agree on that? That's your biggest obstacle to getting into heaven. It's not God's love. It's not that God doesn't love you. He does love you. The biggest obstacle to you getting into heaven is his justice. It's not just. You might be saying, well, no, 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 no. Not me. I mean, I'm not that bad. Plus, I really want to go to the feast upstairs. But if that's how you feel, then you don't really see how precious God is. How amazing, infinitely amazing he is. And that's why sin feels like such a small thing. But it's not. This is the cosmic dilemma that your religion needs to answer. How can God love you and be just? If your religion can't answer this question, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. This is what religion is about. This dilemma. How can God love you, a sinner, and be just? This is the problem. A king who feasts with murderers is not just. If God brings you or me, a sinner, into heaven, he's not just. And then he's not God. Do you see the problem? It's a big problem. Let's change the picture, okay? You and I, 
we're like people who've eaten at a restaurant. We ordered everything on the menu. We stuffed our faces. We didn't have enough money to pay for it. So we hit the jets and ran before the bill came. What do you think would happen if you show up to that restaurant again? You think the owner's going to serve you again? No, not until you pay for your bill. And even then, he's probably going to make sure you've got enough money with you to pay for the next meal before he lets you eat there. In verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, we're going to see that as the Messiah, Jesus brings fullness, life, abundance, feasting forever in the presence of God. But before we can be a part of it, justice and payment must be done. He's the solution to the cosmic dilemma. He's the only one who's the solution to this problem. This is what you need to know. This is what you need. Even if you're a believer, this is what the Christian life is. It's understanding more and more that anything good that comes my way was bought for me by Jesus. And this is what your neighbors, the people who live all around you, the people you work with, this is the thing they need to know, how God can love them and be just. So here's how we're going to break down this passage. We're going to walk through like this. We're going to look at the sign of Jesus as the Messiah. We're going to look at, two, the purpose of Jesus as the Messiah. And then we're going to see a confirmation of his purpose in the text. That'll make sense when we get there. But through it, what we're going to see is that if you want to be pure so that you can be a part of the feast, Jesus must die. That's what we're going to see. So let's look at a sign of Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus and five of his disciples, his new disciples, only five at this point, they're at a wedding, and there's not enough wine. So what does Jesus do? He turns water into wine. Before, before we start any of this, we need to just overcome what is a significant stumbling block for some of you. It's wine. Jesus makes wine, alcohol here. In the ancient world, wine was cut. It was usually about a third to a tenth of the strength of our wine today, but it was still alcoholic. You could get drunk on it. That's why there's warnings against drunkenness in the Bible. Drinking alcohol, hear me on this, is not a sin. Alcohol touching your lips and going into your stomach is not a sin. If it is, we're in big, big trouble because Jesus drinks it, and we need him to be sinless. And apparently, he makes really good wine. The Old Testament prophesies that when the Messiah comes, you saw it, he's going to bring the kind of abundance and feasting where wine is plenty. He's going to do that kind of thing. So it cannot be simply that fermented grapes touching your tongue or your stomach defiles you. Now, in Ephesians 5.18, we see drunkenness is a sin. God wants you to maintain control of your heart and your mind. So if you have so much alcohol, you've lost control of your heart and your mind. God does not like that. That's a sin. 
Some people really stumble over this because you, you may be one of these people that you've been taught that touching certain objects, drinking certain drinks, eating certain foods are what defile you. So wine going into your mouth, that makes your soul dirty. Eating certain kinds of meat, that makes your soul dirty. You go to a certain location, that makes your soul dirty. But Jesus says, no, that's not what defiles you. It's not what your body touches. It's not the food or drink that goes into your body. What is it? It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. That's what we've got to worry about. There's pride inside our hearts, isn't there? There's lots of selfishness inside our hearts. That's the kind of stuff that defiles you. The lust that is in your heart, that's what defiles you. It's not drink. It's not food touching your body. The problem is the sin that's inside of us. That's what we need cleanse. You got that? The things that come out of your soul, your heart, that's what we need cleansing from. And that's what Jesus does. Now, if you've got more questions, this, that's not what this sermon's about. But if you've got more questions, please come talk to me. You can find Luke after the service. Where I'll take you is Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 22. We'll go to Luke. No, we won't go to Luke. You can go talk to Luke. But he'll probably point you to Colossians 2, 20 through 23, or 1 Timothy 4. Just a big divide between the Christian religion and others. We don't think touching things makes you clean or unclean. Bowing in just the right way, using your body in just the right movements does anything to your soul. We don't believe that. What we need is our sin cleansed, the evil within us. Okay, so Jesus is going to turn water into wine, and he's not sinning when he does it. When he turns water into wine, verse 11 says this, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believe in him. Now, why do his disciples believe in him after this? The first, the first reason would be turning water into wine isn't that easy if you've actually tried it. You can get a big bucket of water and you can wait for it to ferment. You can wait and wait and wait. It's not going to happen. Jesus is doing something creative, God-like. He's turning on a chemical level, he's turning one thing into another. Not just one thing into another. He's turning one thing into another thing that takes a really long time to make, like growing grapes on a vine, squishing them, and letting them ferment for a long time. He's doing it like that. It's very godlike, isn't it? That's, that's the kind of power the disciples can believe in. There's something else going on. We saw it before, right before the prayer. In the Old Testament, the age of the Messiah is characterized by wine. It's a symbol of abundance. You heard Sonny read this. I'm going to read it again. This is God speaking in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. In that day, God's saying, I will raise up the booth of David. So he's saying the house of David. David was the king of Israel. They're looking for a future king from David's family who's going to rescue them. And God's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to raise up his house, his family line, repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. 
that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So not just Israel is included here, it's the world. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, in that day, the day of the Messiah, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So when the Messiah comes, there's going to be lots of wine. The picture here is instead of streams of water flowing down these hills, it's streams of wine. And it's a symbol for abundance, fullness, feasting. That's what the Messiah is going to bring. Listen to how Isaiah says it. This is Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. That's the kind of thing that's going to happen when the Messiah shows up. All the peoples are going to be there. He's going to swallow up death. And there's going to be abundance, wine, feasting. So, the disciples see glory here. Not only are they seeing Jesus do something godlike, they're seeing him do something Messiah-like. This is the kind of thing the Messiah is going to do when he comes. So when Jesus does this sign, it's a sign of the Messiah. It's a sign of the promised king. Now let's talk about the purpose of Jesus as the Messiah. If your Bible's open, jump back up to verse 1. Because the conversation between Jesus and his mother is really important for understanding this passage. He, she is going to ask him to fix a problem, and he is going to fix the problem, but only after making it clear that he has different purposes than she does. That's what we're going to see. Verses 1 through 3. On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Cana is 13 kilometers from Nazareth. Nazareth was where Jesus grew up later. He started growing up in Egypt. Then they went to Nazareth. It's 13 kilometers away. So it's about a two-and-a-half-hour walk. If you walked from here to the Dinat, Hotel along the roads, it's about 13 kilometers. You could do it. The Radisson's like 11, so just if you know where that is, two kilometers beyond that. So this was the village closest to Jesus where he grew up. They would have known each other. Jesus is clearly invited to this wedding. These people know who he is. They know his mother. There's a good chance that she was involved in the preparations for this because she knows what's going on in the kitchen. It would have been the groom's family's responsibility to provide the wine and probably, we don't know this for sure, but she's probably helping the groom's family out and she knows what's going on in the kitchen. They've run out of wine at this party and it would have been a massive embarrassment. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? How many of you would say that to your mom? I wouldn't say it to my mom unless she knew I was joking. 
That's the only way I would say it to my mom. He calls her woman. Now, notice, in our day and age, that's not something you usually call your mom. And it wasn't something you usually called your mom back then either. He is putting space between the two of them relationally when he calls her woman. It's more distant than if he were to call her mom. So notice that. Next, he says, what does this have to do with me? Now, this is a common Jewish phrase. It's just four words in the Greek. It's what to you and to me. What to you and to me. It's basically, what does your business have to do with my business? It shows up several times in the Old Testament in Hebrew. In the New Testament, when it shows up is Mark 1, Mark 5, Luke 4, and Luke 8. The demons say it. They say, Jesus, what do you have to do with us? It's the only other time it shows up. Jesus is not being rude. Jesus was never rude. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is not rude. This man is the most loving person who ever walked the planet. He's not being rude, but he is saying a hard thing to Mary. He is. He's putting some space between them relationally. Now, just a a side note, Jesus does say hard things. So you hear, oh, he's the most loving man that ever lived, and he says hard things. Both of those are true. Jesus will say some of the hardest things you will ever hear if you truly take them to heart. Like you're a sinner and you don't deserve anything from God. And if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. He says very hard things, but he's not a hard man. The heart behind those words will go to the cross and be crushed for you and me. He's the most loving man who ever lived. What he's telling his mom, he's not being rude, but he is telling her that his priorities are different than hers. That's what he's saying when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? She may be his mother, but he has commitments that exceed even his family commitments. He's committed to a purpose. I think that's what he's communicating here that supersedes even his mom's desires. So what he's making clear here here is, listen, you want me to save some people from embarrassment, mom, but I'm here to do something much greater than that. I'm here for a different reason. This is very similar to last week. Remember last week, Nathaniel is talking to Jesus. Jesus shares a little bit of secret information about Nathaniel. And Nathaniel goes, whoa, that's the kind of thing the Messiah is going to do. He's going to know our secrets. That's the kind of Messiah he is. And Jesus says, hold on. I'm here for way more than that. I'm here to bring you to God. Mary comes to Jesus because she wants to save people from embarrassment. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I'm here to do way more than that. Now, look at, look at what he says next in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does that mean? What is Jesus' hour? In the Gospel of John, Jesus' hour refers to one thing and one thing only. See if you can figure out what it is. I'm going to read a few verses here from John. 
John 7, verse 30. They were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 23 through 24. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. John 13, 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. You don't need to guess, do you? What's Jesus' hour? Jesus' hour is the hour of his death. So how is this an answer to Mary's request? Jesus, we don't have any wine. Woman, it's not time for me to die yet. That's strange. Jesus sees more going on than Mary does. She's thinking, Jesus, I know you're the most resourceful person who's ever lived. Would you do something about the wine problem? And he's thinking, it will be my job to supply the wine someday. Not so that some people can avoid embarrassment, but because I will be the provider for the everlasting feast in the presence of God, but not until I I think that's what Jesus sees going on here. Then he's going to give a preview of that kind of work that he's going to do in the new world. He does it for different reasons than Mary, but he provides wine, and he does it miraculously. Now, why does Jesus have to die before he can do these things? Why does Jesus have to die before he can bring us into the everlasting feast and abundance and joy in the presence of God? Because payment has to be made. Payment has to be made for all the things we've done wrong, and somebody's got to pay for the feast that's coming. Listen to these verses. This is the New Testament, Colossians 2.14. He, Jesus cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You hear that? When Jesus is on the cross, he's dying for your debt. Did you know that you have a list of debts? They're different than the person next to you. You've got a list. It's not a little list. It's not fitting on a postcard. You've got a big list of debt towards God, sin, and it has to be paid for. And Colossians 2 is saying, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, you know what he's doing? He's nailing your debt to that cross. Payment. That's what's happening. For all you've done, you, your particular record of debt, nailed to the cross. That's not all he's doing. 
He's also securing something else in the future. Listen to Hebrews 9.12. By means of his own blood, he secures an eternal redemption. So he's not just paying for your past wrongs. He's also paying for the feast so that you can be a part of it forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what he's doing on the cross. You and I have eaten at the table of God's goodness again and again and again, and we've run off before we paid the bill. But somebody's got to pay it. And the problem, your problem, my problem, is you don't have any money. And you don't have any credit. You've got none. So you can't pay. Only Jesus has that kind of credit. That's what we've been seeing in John 1, isn't it? He's the perfect man, so he can die for us. But he's God, which means he has all the value of God, which means on his credit card, he has no limit. He's God, and he's man. What's happening on the cross is Jesus is hanging there Or better yet, let's change the picture. He's walking up to the table, and he slaps his credit card down, and he says, everything they ate and ran off, I'm paying for it. And anything they want on the menu, it's on me. That's what's happening at the cross. You've got to get what Jesus is communicating here. Yes, I provide the wine of abundance, fullness, feasting forever and ever, But understand, you can only enjoy it because I'm going to pay for it myself. I think that's what Jesus is seeing. Mary wants wine to rescue these people from embarrassment, but Jesus is here to rescue us from our sins. That's what he's here to do. He's going to give her her and his disciples a preview of the kind of work he's going to do. But we've got to see it's his death that pays for our sins and pays for our enjoyment of that greater feast. Now, here's a confirmation, moving on to this third section. Here's a confirmation that we're on the right track. John gives us a clue. Let's read verses 6 through 10 together. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Question number one. When Jesus makes wine... Is it better or is it worse than what came before? It's better. It's clearly better. The master of the feast can't believe it. He says, this is not what you do. You give the good stuff. People, they drink too much. They don't even care what's coming at the end. You save the best stuff for last. So Jesus clearly brings something better than what they had before. Question number two, what kind of jars does Jesus fill up? Stone jars... Verse 6, for the Jewish rites of purification. 
why would John include the purpose of the jars? Why didn't he just say there were six stone jars there? Could it be that the purpose of those jars has something to do with the purpose of this story? I think so. The Jews washed themselves not to get rid of germs. Nobody knew about germs back then. But because they thought that if they rubbed water on their hands and skin, they were purifying themselves spiritually. They were doing something to their souls. What's the problem with that? When you rub water on your skin, you're not touching your soul. That's the problem. We touched on this before. Wine touching your mouth cannot make you unclean. Keeping it out of your mouth cannot make you clean. Putting water on your body is not the kind of purification you need. You need, you and I, we both need what's in us cleansed. How do you get there? We need our selfish thoughts and our selfish deeds cleansed. How do you do that? We need our lustful thoughts, our lust for other people and the lustful things we do. We need that cleansed. How do you do that? You're not doing that with water. You're not doing that by not tasting wine. We need our pride cleansed, our hatred, our hateful thoughts for other people and the hateful things we do. How do you cleanse that? That's the only kind of cleansing we need. How do you do it? Not touching wine won't do it. Water on your body won't do it. Do you know what will? The blood of Jesus. It's the only purification that works. He pays for your sins. And this is what we're getting at. The reason he brings up the hour of his death is because what he's doing is he's paying for your sins so that you, in God's eyes, can really be forgiven by God. That's what you need. And it's yours if you trust. You get that? If you trust him on the cross, paying your debt and paying your way into the feast, paid. That's how it happens. And that's what he came to do. He'll put his spirit in you then. He's not just going to cleanse the things you've done in the past. He's going to put his spirit inside of you. It's one of the things he purchased so that as you get to know him more, you become purer and purer like he is. That's what he's done for you. It's what he's come to do. Nobody at this wedding is going to be performing the Jewish rites of purification anymore, are they? They can't. John makes it clear they, they filled the jars up to the brim. Nobody's going to be washing themselves anymore for the Jewish, Jewish rites of purification. They can't because the water for purification has been filled, replaced with the better wine that Jesus brings. He brings a better purification. I think that's what going, what's going on because he really purifies. These other symbols, washing on hands, they don't touch your soul, but he can. He's the only thing that, he, that can. This sermon is called, if you saw it on the bulletin, it's called The Purchase and a Preview of Glory. The preview is Jesus turning water into wine. It's a preview because it's a picture of the kind of thing he's going to do in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's only a preview because before he does those things in full, he must die to truly purify us. 
So have you been purified by this man? It's a question for you. Have you been purified by him? He's the only thing that's going to really purify your heart. You doing good works doesn't purify anything. Not touching some objects, touching certain objects can't touch your soul. You need to be purified by the blood of Jesus. He died to pay your punishment and to pay your seat at the feast. Do you see it? He solves this dilemma we started with. He's the only solution to the dilemma. How can God love you? Not just now, but how can God love you in 10,000 years and be just? It's because Jesus Christ paid for it. He paid for all the past sins. He's paying for every enjoyment you'll ever have in the future. I said this at the beginning. Believers, this is not just for unbelievers. Like Unbelievers need to know that Jesus paid for our purification. This really is true. The way you will glorify Jesus with your life, Christians, is when you realize any good thing that you have received or will receive, not just before you die, but I mean in 40,000 years, any single good thing that you ever receive, Jesus Christ paid for it. He's glorified in your life when you, re- when you recognize it. You give him credit and you say, oh, God, every good thing I have is a gift that you paid for? That's how God's going to look great in your life. That's how the work of Jesus is going to look great in you. Unbelievers, for those who just don't know, let him wash your guilt away. If you trust him, he'll cleanse you where nothing else can. And he's the only cleansing that works. Someday, if you trust him in this life, he will bring you not to a preview of the feast. He'll bring you to the real thing because he's purchased it for you. Let's pray. There's no one like you, Jesus. We have our own agenda. We've got our own purposes. But yours are better because you know what we need more than anything else. We can feel like embarrassment is one of our biggest problems in this life, but it's not. We need to be cleansed. All of us feel like we deserve to be loved by you, God, but we don't. We don't. But you love us anyways. And so you sent your son to fix the problem that nothing else can fix. Payment. And in doing so, you showed us how great your love is. You sent your own son so that we could be purified and so that every enjoyment we experience at this moment and every moment afterwards, we can know it was paid for. (laughs) How worthy are you, Jesus, to pay for such a debt? And how worthy are you, Jesus, to pay for such a feast? We bless you. We want you to be glorified in our lives as we bless you, as the payment. And the one who provides all good things for your people. So help us to know we don't deserve a thing. But you do. Your credit card pays it all. It can never run out. 
Help us to enjoy you more through knowing it. Would you use us to draw other people to yourself? That they would hear there's one solution. There's one solution to the problem of how can God love us sinners and be just. And we know it. So would you give us courage? And as we share, would your powerful gospel do its work? We ask in the mighty name of Jesus.